Matthew is not an author who's writing children's stories. He's not pinning mythology or Aesop's fables or some pretty cool moralistic narratives in order to inspire us in this holiday season. He is grounding the claims of Jesus Christ solidly in history. That if this, in fact, is not true, then what are we here doing? This is just mere sentimental tripe. This is sort of secular humanistic fluff. It's just holiday tradition, but there's really no meat substance to it. And Matthew, here in introducing us to his book, is reminding us that we are worshiping and proclaiming and living out a real person, the God-man Jesus Christ. Now, the way that Matthew opens this book is maybe not the way you would have opened up your book, but he pins a genealogy of all things, sort of an ancestral resume for Jesus. And as a reminder, we talked about this last week, Matthew was wanting to make the case of why Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than Jesus the Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth, this man raised in obscurity in this little backwash in Galilee, is in fact the anointed one, God's chosen Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies. So he gives us a genealogy. Now, why does he give us a genealogy? Well, genealogies were a big deal in Jewish culture. This has to do with the, the founding of Israel, which remember came through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob. And then when the Israelites entered the promised land from Egypt, each of the 12 tribes were apportioned a section of land. And it was part of God's design that the, that the kingdom of Israel be ruled according to these tribes. And so there was a whole host of laws to make sure that the tribes stayed together. So for example, if you went to buy and sell a piece of property and you were the tribe of Reuben, you could not sell that to someone who was a member of the tribe of Gad or Manasseh. You had to, to exchange property within tribes to keep this tribal land together. And so what would you produce to show that you were really a son of Reuben? Your genealogy, right? Keep in mind, um, this was the same thing that happened when the tribes returned from exile in Babylon. Remember, only people of the tribe of Levi could minister in the temple. And so there were people presenting themselves as, I'm ready to sign up for my service in the temple. And God said, listen, if they can't produce their genealogy to show they're truly from the tribe of Levi, they can't serve. Another example, we just read this story this morning. It was part of our Advent reading with Kevin and Nicole. Who were um, Joseph and Mary? They were members of the tribe of Judah. And they had to return to their ancestral land to register. So you can see genealogies were a big deal for the Jew. It was their driver's license, voting card, passport, all wrapped up into one. Your genealogy, kind of like the old American Express commercial, remember, don't leave home without it. But this genealogical resume is particularly odd as we look at it, and it reads more like a genogram versus a genealogy. Now, what's the difference in a genogram and a genealogy? When I was in seminary, we took a pastoral counseling course 
where we had to dive into our family histories and backgrounds. And this genogram was not merely facts, like who married whom and who died where and who was born where and those sorts of things. It was more akin to putting together a family diary where you had to identify relational patterns, boundaries, dysfunction, people being cut off from one another, people being enmeshed, family secrets. A friend of mine finished his, he vowed to hide it and never let it see the light of day. Um, and I did too. And, and I, just for example, I found in some generations back, there was this suicide in our family. It was, it was a huge family secret. That's what a genogram does. Well, the, interestingly here, the Jews have asked for genealogical proof. But instead, Matthew gives more than they bargained for. He gives them a genogram. This would have been like coming from my first job interview and presenting my resume to the Four Oaks elders. And a resume, let's be honest, what is a resume? It's a lie. No, that's a little strong, okay? It's meant to, how, to highlight how awesome I am and how my weaknesses are really just growth areas that God is working powerfully in, right? But instead of handing them my, 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 my resume, I handed them this sordid doc called my genogram. They would have probably been like, thank you so much. That was helpful. See you later, right? That's not the way to do things. Well, this is essentially what Matthew does. He hands them a resume that highlights some of the most sordid parts of Jesus's pedigree. And as we will see, it's a family history awash in sin and dysfunction. So I've entitled this sermon, I, I, I stole it out of the old Schoolhouse Rock videos. Remember those? And by the way, when I, when I put this in, I didn't know this, but the, the writer of all those songs just passed away in the last day or two. He was 88. But one of my favorite ones was Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function? Remember this? Kids, ask your parents. We're calling this one Dysfunction Junction. Why, Matthew, would you do such a thing? And of course, the answer is going to be to help you understand the gospel better. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to read these first 17 verses and dig in. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abisha. And Abisha the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Oram, and Oram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we pray that maybe for some of us, for the first time, you would give us insights anew into the complexities, sinfulness, dysfunction of human history. But in doing so, give us the greater sense of awe and wonder that in the end, your grace breaks through. And so, Father, we do need to hear that as your people this morning. It can feel like our, our sin is clinging to us, not just of the present, but of the past. And it takes away the hope for the future. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would meet us in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Just two points this morning I want to draw your attention to. First of all, there is an authority conferred that Matthew wants to draw our attention to. And then secondly, there is a grace confirmed. Authority conferred, grace confirmed. Now, when we talk about authority, a cursory glance, I don't know if you've read ahead in the book of Matthew yet, you get a gold star for doing so, right? But when you read through Matthew, if you look hard enough, and once you see it, it's like one of those paintings that like, you look at it and you're like, what's it supposed to be? And it's like, it's the space shuttle hidden in there, right? And you, you stare and stare and stare and you can't see it. But finally, the, you, at one time, I still can't see it. But people say, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to the theme of Matthew. Everything is built around this idea of kingship. And if you hear us sing this Advent season, which hopefully you're queuing into this, a bunch of songs about Jesus as being the king, that's not that, that is very intentional. Joe is not just rolling the ball out here every morning saying, hmm, what should we sing? You see this idea of Jesus' kingship all over Matthew. Just a few examples, right? Wise men come bearing gifts for whom? A king. They worship a king. Herod the king wants to kill all the baby boys in Nazareth because they're a threat to his what? Kingship. He doesn't want them to be a king. We hear Jesus from the get-go proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Satan takes Jesus up to the temple mount and says, I offer all of the kingdoms of the world, if you'll just bow down and worship me. We get to the end of Matthew's gospel. It's the triumphal entry of whom? The king, right? And this would have gotten Matthew's readers' attention, this genealogy, because they were, as we said last week, primarily Jewish. And as Jews, they knew the Old Testament was incomplete. 
Meaning when you get to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Chronicles, we see that a king has been promised. That was, the, that was the hope of every Jew, that a king was going to come and deliver them, rescue from their abysmal, occupied existence, cleanse them from their sins, restore them to the rightful place of their father, David, to usher in this era of peace and the kingdom of God. But there was a problem. The Old Testament ends, there is no king. Jeconiah has been deposed and ostensibly his line has died out. The kingship has left the building. And what's left is just a very dim hope on the part of the Israelites. And Matthew wants to tell them, he didn't come in the way that you thought. It wasn't in the time that was expected, but Jesus, in fact, is that king that you've been hoping for. And, and to show this, Matthew's first sort of piece of evidence is to say, note this genealogy. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this genealogy as we get into this is, one, this is not a comprehensive genealogy. In other words, if you go back to Ancestry.com and you look at your family history, you want to know what happened in every single generation. That's not what Matthew does here. He selectively chooses sort of the highlights of the genealogy of Jesus. Imagine you're coming in, you haven't had time to watch the whole football game, you just want to get the scores, you watch ESPN for what the highlights. That's in essence what Matthew is doing here, but the, but the names that he chooses and the circumstances in the family lines are done for very, very specific reasons. There's an order and a structure. In fact, anytime the scripture writers say, hey, here's what I'm doing and here's how I'm ordering things, pay attention to that. And so Matthew is very clear. He says, look, there's three groups of 14 generations. And we might say, well, that's awfully neat. How did that happen? Well, this is a literary device Matthew uses, and, and part of, there's this, this, well, first of all, let me say this, there's been tons of debate about what, what is Matthew doing here? Where do we get the number 14, and is it seven times two and three, all, all, the Trinity, and all these sorts of things, right? When you go back, though, and look in context, particularly for the literary devices that were being used in that day in Matthew's time, M Matthew is, and I say most likely, as I know some of you are going to find an article on the internet that says otherwise and send it to me, and that's fine. But it's most likely using a literary device called gematria. And gematria is simply taking the numerical values of a person's name in the Hebrew, the consonants, and sort of ordering and structuring the the material around the ordering of that name, assigning values from the Hebrew alphabet. So, so for example, Matt David in the Hebrew has a numerical value of what? 14, okay? So it's 14, 14, 14. In addition, David's name is the 14th to appear in this order, okay? Now understand, we're not talking Da Vinci Code stuff, right? This, this, is, this is not some, this is something that would have been very obvious to people reading this, particularly Jews, it was something just under, it, was like, it would be like irony or sarcasm for us or snark. We pick up on those things, right? Because it's part of our cultural dynamic. They would have picked up on it. It would have been as plain as the nose on your face that Matthew was saying, look here at the genealogy. 
this genealogy is about David and his rightful heir and ancestor. They would have immediately recognized that. Now, this Advent season, one of the things that you might run across as well is Luke also has a genealogy, which in most every way is very different than Matthew's genealogy. And let me just kind of explain this. This is important to understand what Matthew is doing here. Luke's genealogy, Luke is intent on showing the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was a Jew, that he was physically, by blood, descended from Abraham and David. So Luke shows Jesus' genealogical line through whom? The mother, through Mary, because after all, he was conceived within a woman. That was, that was what made him human, flesh and blood, even though she conceived by the Holy Spirit. This had to happen because Jesus had to share our human nature. For, for, for someone to come and die in the place of sinful humanity, that person had to be human. However, that's not the way Matthew's genealogy functions. Okay? We know, Matthew reminds us, look at verse 16, Jesus had no earthly father. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, is called the Christ. See, Matthew's genealogy is not concerned with blood descent. It's concerned with royal descent. Luke's line takes Jesus' genealogy through the bloodline of Mary, but for Joseph, it's through the royal Davidic line of succession. And this is very important for a couple reasons. One is, if Jesus had a human mother, and also a human father. There would be nothing that would make him God, however miraculous his conception was. That if he was descended from sinful humanity, then a sinner cannot die for other sinners. This man, Jesus Christ, had to be both God, which is what Matthew is intent on showing, and man, which is what Luke is intent on showing. Now, understand something. Royal claims to the throne were not always decided by direct bloodlines. That's not unusual. See, what was paramount in royal succession was the authority bestowed on the next sovereign by the previous sovereign. And the reason this happened is that sometimes... The direct descendant, quite honestly, wasn't worthy of the line. He wasn't faithful. So if you remember in Gladiator, in Marcus Aurelius, his son Commodus was, shall we say, a corrupt man. And so Marcus Aurelius chose Maximus the general to succeed him because his general would be faithful and loyal, that was how succession oftentimes happened. We see the same thing in the tribe of Israel, right? Saul was the king. So by definition, Jonathan should have been the king after Saul. But God said in Samuel, no, no. Saul has been unfaithful. He has forfeited. And so the line of succession now goes to David. Okay? Because Saul was not worthy. 
Now, it's interesting when we come to the last king of Israel, Jeconiah, I want you to hear something that Chronicles tells us about the line of Jeconiah when it makes it clear that there are going to be no physical descendants of Jeconiah on the throne. That line is cursed. Listen to Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, he's writing about Jeconiah, write this man down, talk about Jeconiah, as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This doesn't mean Jeconiah didn't have physical children. He did. What it means is the line is cursed. The line is corrupted. And this presented a massive problem. What would God do with this dynamic tension? That Jesus had to be descended from a human, but yet the line of David as a physical bloodline was totally corrupt. And I think John MacArthur puts this very well. Listen to this quote. I think it's right on. If Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he never could have sat on the throne of David. For two reasons. He would have been sinful and the line was cursed. Everybody understand that? He would be under the curse, and yet he had to be the legal son of Joseph to have the right. So God had to devise a plan by which he would be the legal heir to the throne, but that he would not be in the line of David descending through Jeconiah. And so God did it by the virgin birth, bypassing the actual bloodline of Jeconiah, and yet carrying the royal right to reign and descending the blood through the side of Mary. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that sounds intricate. That sounds complex. That sounds kind of like supernatural. Ah, now you're getting it, right? It's miraculous and supernatural. And part of the wonder of when we come to this genealogy is that it is meant to instill a confidence, a resolve, a conviction that the sovereign God has raised up just the right person to come and die for sinful people. That, that God has been ordering everything in human history to bring humanity to this point all the way down to the genetic codes and bloodlines of people who lived thousands of years before. Folks, does that not just give you confidence that God's got your life too? If God's orchestrating redemptive history, if he's raising up a Messiah, a unique Messiah that is both God and man that's from the royal line and the bloodline and takes into account all the Old Testament curses and promises at the same time, God's got that. God has ordered that. God's built human history around that. Of course he's got you. Of course he's attendant to the problems in your life. Of course he knows every detail. He knows every miscarriage. He knows every sin, every stumble, every disappointment, every heartache. Because I understand something. The, the, the history of Israel was filled with it. It was a sad history. And so many times we look at our lives and the culture we live in and say, it is such a sad time. 
to which God says, but just remember, I'm orchestrating everything, not just in the world, but in your life to display my grace to you. Galatians 4, it's just such a great verse. Apply this, may it be a banner over some area of longing for you this season. Here it is. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let it be a banner for folks. Let it be what you meditate on when you get up this Advent season, when, when all around gives way, when things seem murky and cloudy and dark. Just remember, at just the right time, God sent His Son. And at just the right time, God meets you where you are. Authority of Christ as the King is foundational to this whole book. And as a result, it's a foundational to your life. So let's look at the second point. Grace confirmed. Now, one of the outstanding features of this genealogy, of course, is that it includes four women, five if you count Mary. And now that happens some in the Old Testament, but in ancient Middle East literature, that would have been highly unusual. And these four women, of course, are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the notorious wife of Uriah, right? That would be Bathsheba. And of course, these, if you know your Old Testament, these aren't just any women. Let me just kind of note three things about um, these women that they all share in common. First, they were all, shall we say, somewhat infamous, right? They all had a somewhat of a reputation and not of the good kind. So Tamar seduced Judah, who was her father-in-law. So there was an incestuous birth of twins to her. Rahab, she's, one, she's like Sting or Bono. She, she, you know her by one name, right? And so, so if I say Rahab, you know immediately the next two words, the prostitute, right? Everybody knew Rahab the prostitute. Bathsheba, of course, notoriously, and Samuel devotes, or the book of Kings devotes a huge section to this. He has, she has this notorious illicit sexual relationship with the king. Ruth has many things to commend her, but let's be honest, something, some kind of hanky-panky was happening there on the threshing floor with Boaz, right? When she uncovered his feet, quote-unquote. Now, now, understand, let me just say something. The one thing I don't think is happening is that that Matthew is just picking on the women. Because when you look through this history, there are plenty, there's plenty of sin to go around. Jacob, the deceiver, right? Judah, um, the one who abandoned his daughter-in-law. I mean, Manasseh, I mean, every, there, there, we could go on and on. There is sin up and down this genealogy. But nonetheless, he does highlight these four sinful women. A second thing we want to know about these women is that they were all, and I think this is really a big part of it, Gentiles. Did you know that? See, <clears throat> Judah, Tamar, remember Judah had married a Canaanite. or I'm sorry, he had given his sons to the daughters Canaanite. So Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Um, Ruth was a Moabite. And remember, Moabites were detested by the Israelites because their line came from the incestuous relationship of Lot 
and his daughters. You think your family is jacked up. Let me just tell you, okay? Um, we, we have, of course, Bathsheba was married to Uriah the what? The Hittite. And this would have been a shock, shocking thing to see not only women in this genealogy, and not only sinful women, but sinful Gentile women. Okay, you following the, 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 the track here? And a third thing, and this is again obvious, all of their family situations were, shall we say, highly unusual. I mean, there was, you know there was plenty of shotgun weddings in this group, ancient Near East style, right? Ruth and Boaz, an Israelite marrying a Moabite, directly against, essentially, the commands of God. Bathsheba and David, a product of adultery. Rahab and Boaz, a, a Canaanite Jewish marriage. I could, we could go on and on and on, right? What is Matthew doing here? I think in highlighting these unusual marital alliances, by the way, let me just say this as a sidebar, I think, first of all, he's showing us just how similar this was to the birth of Jesus, right? When he talks about Joseph and Mary, which was Mary had to spend all nine months in hiding because she was pregnant and people knew she wasn't married and two and two. And that, I mean, if you could go back in the Gospels again, look, if you see it, once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. What was questioned about Jesus oftentimes more than anything else? His ancestry, right? He, who was his father and where did he come from and where was he born? He was born in iniquity. He was born in sin. He was, I mean, this was all part of his background. But here is the biggest point, I think, that we can take from all this of why Matthew is doing this. I think Matthew is simply showing us, Four Oaks, that God's grace can penetrate anywhere. Any person, any relationship, any circumstance. God's family is big enough to receive anyone who turns to him in faith and repentance. Jesus didn't just die for one group of people. He died for all kinds of people. Everyone all over the place. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, grace just oozes out of this genealogy. And you see this, right? I think there's another reason why he included these women. It's because of the way God worked redemptively in their lives. Do you realize that in ancient Hebraic tradition, um, Tamar was a revered person? In fact, Judah says, she's more righteous than me. She, she was a desperate woman and had to cling to the promises of God. We, we see Rahab, right? She was the prostitute. And now what? Rahab is in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. I mean, we, this, is, this is an amazing transformation that we see in the lives of these women, even Bathsheba. And we may say, well, Pastor Paul, Matthew's so ashamed of Bathsheba, he doesn't even mention her name. She's the wife of Uzziah. That's not why Matthew does that, by the way. See, the reason is to draw attention to David's sin. See, if you were an Israelite, and, and, and you had this notion of the good old days and the golden era when things were so much better and David was this righteous man. Matthew's reminding us the line of the Messiah of Jesus Christ was propagated through the adulterous act 
of David taking and stealing another man's wife. See, this was meant to chop everyone down to size and to say, you think it's all about righteousness and royalty and being good enough, but I'm here to tell you that it's only by the sheer grace of God that anyone was saved. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. Anytime you can get John MacArthur and Tim McKellar in the same sermon, I mean, come on, right? Tim Keller says this, Here then you have moral outsiders, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. Indeed, we are reminded that even the prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were moral failures. The law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, and yet they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. It shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. Did you hear that? It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you repent and believe in him, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover your sin and unite you with him. It is not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. Everyone is in only by the grace of Jesus Christ. It is only what Jesus has done for you that can give you standing before God. Now, you need to understand something. All of gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, but particularly it's just genealogy, would have had an incredible shock value for the Jews who were reading this. Because once again, salvation was for the righteous. Salvation was for the moral. Salvation was for, for those who could do good enough, the law followers. But remember, Matthew's conversion story, and I think this is the, one, of the, one of the reasons he includes it, contradicts that at every turn. Let's, 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 let me read these verses again, Matthew 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, when we see each other after Christmas, and I say, well, how, how does your Christmas go? And you go, oh, man, you won't believe it. We had to spend all day in the ER, Pastor Paul. I would have been, I would have been immediately like, what? What happened? Who was hurt? Who was sick? Who, what kind of accident was happening? You're like, oh, what, what, what happened? Tell me, why did you spend all day in the ER? We just thought it would be a great place to spend Christmas, Right? The snack machine is spot on, right? I love paying $8 for a Coke. It's fun just to be in this lobby with all these screaming, sick, sad, depressing situations. We just thought, this is, this is we're, we're going to be a little different this year as a family. This is where we're going to like stake our claim. You would look at me like, that's ridiculous, right? That's not why people go to the doctor. That's not why people, that's the reason I go to my doctor. But you get what I'm saying, right? That's that's not why people go to the doctor. Why do people go to the doctor? Because they're, about, they're sick, they're about to die. It's like my mom, when she was living, you know, and most of you know my mom knew, she, she, she did not like a doctor's visit, right? 
And, but there was one time she was walking out on the property up at their mountain house in Chattanooga, and she was bit by a copperhead. And as she watched her leg balloon and her, um, you know, all of her faculties and her blood pressure drop and she's feeling pain sick, you better believe she went to the hospital. And when you are sick, when, you, when, you're, when your life is threatened, right, we all instinctively know what to do. Guys, if you don't know you're sinful, if you don't know how desperate your condition is before God, then God's grace will be just sort of meh to you. Right? See, Jesus's what was his central complaint against the Pharisees? It's not that they were so sinful. Don't, don't mistake that. It's that they didn't know they were so sinful. They were in denial about their own sinfulness. They were in denial about their own self-righteousness. And what was keeping them from the kingdom was their lack of awareness about who they truly are. So, folks, one of the reasons Matthew gives us this genealogy, and I know this is a tough one, is to give us a mirror right into our own hearts. It's to give us a mirror right into our own souls. That we don't read this genealogy and say, whew, that was dysfunctional. Man, thank goodness. I'm thankful to be in the background I am and have the life that I've had and made the choices that, that I've had just so much less complicated. <laughs> You've missed the point. See, he wants, Matthew wants us to read this and say, that's me. I, I, I resemble that. I've made some horrific choices in my life, just like these men and women. I've been in low, low places. I have seen the, the effects of my own sin extend far beyond me, into my marriage, into my kids. It, it grieves my heart. It breaks my heart. To which Jesus says, that's important. You have to know that. Because if you don't know that you're sick, you will never go to the doctor. And if you don't know that you're a sinner, you'll never seek after the grace of Christ. See, sometimes, sometimes, part of God's grace to us is when life stops working, when life starts to fall apart, when our bodies fail us, our finances evaporate, our marriage struggles, our kids go off the reservation, relationships disappoint us, we can't shake addictions, we can't shake sinful habits. All of those get the best of us. And in that moment, we are reminded we are nothing apart from the sheer grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forks, let, let this genealogy this morning be your invitation to the table. It's why we come each and every Sunday, because we are reminding ourselves in parable form, we need Jesus. So I'm going to invite our leaders to come and serve communion to us, and as they do, I'm going to ask you just to spend a minute or two silently preparing your hearts to come to the table.